Well, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. The Lord knows what our hearts need to be together, to sing hymns, to pray, read scripture, and to have the word preached. This uh, does so much good for the soul of the believer. Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning in Romans chapter 15, we've come to the beginning of the end of the most important book ever written. That's Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 21 will be our text today. And Paul has finished up the doctrinal section of the book, beginning all the way back in Romans chapter 1, carrying us through the sinfulness of man, the work of Christ, salvation by faith, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the electing purpose of the Father, the Christian life in Romans 12 through 15, and now he comes to the concluding matters, going back to his relationship to the church at Rome, as well as his call as an apostle to the Gentiles. As you are there in Romans chapter 15, let's go ahead and read the text, familiarize ourselves with what we'll be looking at, starting there in verse 14. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, Paul, like most good writers, he circles back at the end of his letter to some of the things he said at the beginning. You have your introduction and your conclusion kind of mirror one another. And so, I want you also to Get in your mind at the start of our service here, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Go all the way back to the beginning, and we'll see how many of the things we just read were what Paul led off with before he dove into the gospel and all of its implications spelled out in this most magnificent letter. Romans chapter 1, follow along in your Bibles, verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, 
both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So you see there that Paul starts the letter by establishing this relationship, this connection with the church at Rome. And now that he has unfolded all that he wanted to write to them, he goes back to that relationship that he has with the church at Rome. Here's our outline for our passage today, Romans 15, verses 14 through 21. really going to be looking into the apostleship of Paul, that Paul is going to be relating to the church at Rome as an apostle. That's why he has written this letter to them. He's taken it upon himself boldly to write to a church that he did not start, and in fact that he had never visited before, and he's even writing to them practical concerns about things that are going on in their congregation, exhorting them on how to accept and welcome one another, even when they have different ideas about food sacrifice to idols and other issues. And so, He wants them to know that he's not writing to them in some condescending or he's butting into their affairs, but that he's fulfilling his responsibility as the apostle to the Gentiles, that Christ has appointed him to a ministry and a task, and that he has that burden from the Lord for them, even though he holds them in high regard, he wants to be a help to them in their service. So Paul's apostleship in relationship to the church at Rome, and we see here in verse 14, Paul's confidence in the church at Rome. Then we'll take a look at his boldness in writing to them, his priestly service in verses 15 and 16, and finally his boasting in the Lord. Isn't that an interesting idea, boasting in the Lord, in verses 17 through 21. All this has to do with the apostleship of Paul in relationship to Rome. So Paul wants to start off there in verse 14, if you take a look at that verse again, expressing his great confidence in the church at Rome. He says, I myself, when he says I myself, he's saying, I've heard other people talk about your church, and I'm convinced that when I hear good reports about your faith, your walk with the Lord, I'm convinced that you are a solid church. He says, I myself, am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Here, I think, is a beautiful expression of the apostle in the confidence that he has in the church's ability to minister to itself. Okay? We live in the post-apostolic age of the church. We don't have apostles traveling around, starting churches, correcting churches, installing elders, or any of that type of activity. But what this verse reveals for us in the post-apostolic age of the church is that even without the apostles, the church is sufficient. The church has what it needs from God, from God's Holy Spirit, in order to become everything that God wants us to be. We don't need anything outside of what God has already entrusted to us in order to become everything that God has called us to be. This is not only a confidence that Paul expresses, but you see this also in all of the apostles of the New Testament. That when the apostles write to the churches, they do not write in condescension. In fact, when Peter addressed his letter to the churches, he told them that he was writing as a fellow servant of Jesus Christ, one who had received the same kind of faith that they had. So just as 
Peter received grace from the Lord Jesus Christ, so we have received grace. Just as he received faith that he was unworthy of, having denied Christ, and yet Christ appointed him to feed his lambs, so in the same way, the local church is loved by God and has been given every spiritual blessing. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he commended the church. He talked about how God had been so gracious in giving them every spiritual gift and that they were filled with knowledge. Even though they weren't walking in that knowledge, it wasn't that they didn't have what they needed. They just weren't using what they had. And in the same way, when John was writing his letter to the churches, you can go read First John, you can read the confidence that John has in the people of God. He doesn't write from on high to the lower level people. But no, he's writing as a brother. He's writing as someone who knows that they are strong in the Lord. Let me share one of the verses there, I think, that really helps drive this home from John's letter. In 1 John 2.20, you could make note of it. It says, but you, speaking to the churches that he's writing to, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And when John is writing, when Peter is writing, he's saying, I'm not giving you anything new. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't already received. I'm reminding you of the things that you already know, the things that you already have, the things that God has blessed you with. And how important it is for the church to recognize the sufficiency of the local church. Let's look at this word that Paul uses here when he says that you are able to instruct one another. That's an important word. The word there in the Greek is nuthetain. It means to admonish, it means to correct, it means to advise, it means to warn. And I'm going to show you a number of its uses in the New Testament. Literally, it means to put in mind. That you're telling someone what they need to keep in mind because they're not being mindful of the things that they should be mindful of. And this is what the church does for the members of the church. It's not my job to be the only one putting you in mind of what you're supposed to be thinking, but you all have goodness, you all have knowledge, and you don't need some priestly class in order to instruct you. You are the priests. You are the instructors. You are the ones who are competent to counsel one another. In fact, there's a book that was published on this subject back in 1986 by a Christian named Jay Adams. And Jay Adams' book, Competent to Counsel, is based upon this word to admonish, to correct, to instruct. And when Paul says, you are full of goodness and knowledge and able to instruct one another, Jay Adams saw in that the call for Christians to recognize that you don't have to be an expert in psychology. You don't have to be an expert in psychiatry. You don't have to study Carl Jung or Freud in order to be able to offer good counsel to people, but that God's people who have the word of God in their heart, who have the spirit of God producing within them goodness, virtue, goodwill, honesty, integrity, that you are the counselors. You don't even need me to be your counselor. You are wise. You are knowledgeable. And so I exhort you, I encourage you as Christians to use the knowledge that God has given you. Use the goodness that God has given you in order to instruct and admonish one another. Wow. Can you imagine being in a church where people actually had the audacity to instruct and admonish the people that are in church next to them? That just doesn't happen. 
We go to church in order to experience worship, not in order to be admonished and instructed by the people who are sitting in the pews. We don't even know if we want the pastor to be doing much instructing and admonishing. But no, in the New Testament, the church is called upon to instruct and admonish one another. This is a ministry that God has diffused among the whole body of Christ. And so you must take your responsibility to instruct and admonish me and all of the congregants who are here. You need to be putting us in mind of what we need to be keeping in mind because we forget so often. We need people around us who are going to be able to tell us, uh, you forgot about this. You're neglecting this. You should be doing this. And that's what the family does. See, we're not just a, a worship center. We're a family of disciples who are admonishing and instructing one another. Now, not only do I exhort you, admonish you, put you in mind to be doing that for others, but to welcome it and receive it for yourself. Ask for other people to instruct and admonish you. If people are too shy, if people are too sheepish because of the Christian culture that we live in and nobody feels like they can instruct and admonish one another, ask for people. Say, do you see anything in my life that needs to be changed? Do you see anything I'm doing that's not wise, that's not pleasing to the Lord? What could our church be doing better? What can I as a pastor be doing better? You go and you ask people to instruct you and admonish you. That's what a wise person does. And in the abundance of counselors, there is victory. And look around. You have an abundance of counselors here. And it's not only limited to the members of this congregation, but all the Christian friends that you've built up, all the pastors who've spoken into your life. Get wise counsel. You know, you can ask me, and I'll give you the best counsel I can give you, but I'm not the only counselor. There's a lot of pastors, there's a lot of elders who have wisdom that I don't have. Take advantage of the spiritual riches that God has given at your disposal so that you can be instructed. Christians have always been able to counsel one another and always will be able to counsel one another, no matter how much the world tries to tell us that it's the job of professionals who are trained in universities. Christians have always been competent to counsel one another. Christians will always be able to counsel one another, no matter how much the world tries to tell us that it's not our job, that it's the job of trained professionals who are trained in worldly wisdom. I'm not saying that the psychologists and the psychiatrists in the world don't know anything and that there's not ever a time where you can't reference what they've studied and what they've learned about a subject. But we are the ones who know what it means to be human. We are the ones who know what the purpose of life is. We are the ones who know God and who can take all the information and knowledge that is in the world and put it to good use. Be careful about receiving counsel and instruction from those who do not know God, lest you become like them. Let's look at a few verses here about this word instructing or admonishing one another. Acts 20, verse 31, Paul's describing his ministry. He says to the elders who are now going to be watching over the church in his absence as he travels on, he says, Be alert! remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul's not just holding class on Sunday morning and giving his message and then going home and relaxing during the week. Night and day, he is admonishing everyone with tears. This is what the Christian ministry is supposed to look like. 
Elders, are you admonishing and instructing the church? Individuals, families within the church. That is your responsibility. That's what Paul told the elders. Be on the alert. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. That word warning is this word, nutheteo. It's the admonishing, it's the instructing, it's the correcting, the advising. We're warning everyone, teaching everyone, with all wisdom. That's what God has given to us, all wisdom. Does the world have all wisdom? No. Does the church have all wisdom? Yes. Do we always use it? No. But we are responsible with the treasure that God has given to us, the wisdom that is in Christ. And our goal, that we may present everyone mature in Christ, we'll be coming back to that. Colossians 3.16, another use in the same book. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The wisdom, the admonishing, the one another, the word of Christ, it's all right there. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we're not just singing songs, but we're also admonishing one another with the wisdom that comes from the word of God, the word of Christ. Another, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Elders, this is again, this is your verse. You are appointed in the church to admonish the church. You must know what the condition of God's flock is. You must be putting the sheep of God in mind of what God wants them to do how he wants their marriage to function, how he wants them to operate as parents, how they're supposed to behave in the workplace to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, how we're supposed to be at unity with one another, forgiving one another, and not harboring bitterness and grudges. The elders are responsible for the church to admonish. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. And if an elder admonishes you, don't get mad at him. He's just doing what God told him to do. Fulfilling his responsibility before God. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him, that's the same word, admonish, after admonishing him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. If somebody's stirring up division in the church, and the elders do what they're supposed to do, they admonish him, and he won't repent, he won't change, he doesn't get to be a part of the church anymore. If you don't listen to God's wisdom, you can't be a part of God's team. You've got to play according to the rules if you're going to be helping us and pleasing the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says this, Fathers, dads, and I think this will include mothers too, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word instruction is the same word that we have here. It's the admonishing the correction, the advising, the warning, putting our children in mind of what they're supposed to be mindful of. That's the responsibility of parents. Now, in transitioning from our first point in our outline, I wanted to put this verse up here because it captures the whole idea of this verse we just looked at, that Paul, even though he writes to the church at Rome with apostolic authority, kind of butting in to a church that he had nothing to do with starting and he's never visited, he wants to remind them that they are capable of fulfilling the ministry and being strong, whether he's there or not. And so 
The same spirit, the same humility of the apostles is demonstrated in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, another church where Paul had to navigate the politics of his relationship with the church. So Paul is navigating the relationship with the church here in Rome. Now he did have a relationship with the church at Corinth, but it was a rocky relationship at times. And so in a similar way, Paul shows his humility throughout those letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 1, verse 24 of his second letter, he says, not that we lord it over your faith. The shepherds of the church are not lording it over. That's what Peter wrote to the elders. But we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. Now the Corinthians were having difficulties standing firm in their faith, but notice the grace of Paul that he says, you are standing firm in your faith. They're not standing perfectly, but they are standing, okay? So you've got to give people credit for what they have, even when you're admonishing and instructing them, as Paul was admonishing and instructing the church at Corinth, you do this with grace, and you recognize the work of God in them, and you're not lording it over the faith of others. That's what Paul warns about in writing to the Galatians, that when you go and you help someone who's overtaken by sin, you've got to look to yourself, lest you also get a sinful attitude. Now, that brings us to the second point in our outline, moving into verse 15. And here Paul's going to explain his boldness in writing to them. You see that word there in verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God. I like this word boldness. That's why it's our key word here on the outline. Boldness has the idea of daring. And daring and boldness can be both good or bad. You can dare to do something that you shouldn't do, and that's a foolish daring. Or you can dare to do something that you should do, even though it's difficult, and that's a good kind of daring. And here, this is the good kind of daring that Paul is talking about. Paul is being audacious in writing this letter to the church at Rome with his apostolic authority even though he knows that they are full of goodness and knowledge and able to instruct one another, because yet he knows that he has something to contribute to their walk with the Lord. He has a responsibility before God for them. And so boldly he inserts himself as an apostle. And when he says, because of the grace given me by God, that is a reference to his apostleship. Back in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he talked about the grace of apostleship. And he does this in a number of places. The word grace, in this context, refers to the spiritual gift of apostleship. And this boldness, this daring, this audacity, it's translated by one person, the J.B. Phillips translation, as frankness. And so I, I like that idea, too, of just being frank and speaking to the issue and not being too shy to say what needs to be said. And Paul makes it clear that he's not telling them anything that is contrary to what they already know and believe, but that he is reminding them. This is also characteristic of the apostles in the New Testament. That when Peter was writing, he told them, I'm writing to remind you of what you already know. When John was writing, he's saying, I'm not writing to you because you don't know, but because you do know the truth. And so the apostles were always reminding the churches of the truth that had been once for all delivered to the saints. We don't need new truth. We don't need people coming up with new ideas for the church. What we need are faithful elders who will admonish according to the truth that the church received once and for all at its foundation. There's nothing new. There's no new program. There's no new ideas. 
all there is is reminding you of what God has given to you. Because we forget. We need constant reminders. And so Paul is writing by way of reminder because of the grace given. Now, talking about the apostleship of Paul, here, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the apostleship of Paul is being referenced by the grace of God, and we see this in the following verses. In verses 16, 17, and 18, he goes on and talks about his apostleship, and he even brings in the signs and the wonders there in verse 19. And so Paul, introducing himself to this church at Rome, they might have heard some people say, well, Paul's not really an apostle, you know. He wasn't one of the twelve disciples like James and John and Peter. But you know, he got saved after Christ was raised, and he's kind of out there doing his own thing. And there was a lot of misinformation going around about Paul and doubt about his apostleship. And so Paul even had to defend his apostleship to the Corinthian church, and he says, "...the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works." So the church shouldn't be looking for signs and wonders and mighty works today unless you believe in apostles today. And if you believe in apostles today, then you should have new revelation today and should be adding books to your Bible. And I don't think that's a good idea. So the signs and wonders movement is not a good idea because what you see here is the signs and wonders were what confirmed the apostles. The apostles were the ones who had these gifts. The apostles were the ones who were able to bestow these gifts. And as the church continued after the apostolic era then these signs and wonders gifts disappeared gradually from the scene as well as those who had received those gifts from the apostles also passed away. And so throughout church history, we look back on the signs and wonders that authenticated the apostles, even as Paul here points out his apostleship to the Gentiles with the power of the signs and the wonders in verse 19. And also in thinking about the apostleship of Paul, it wasn't only the miracles that showed that Paul was a genuine apostle, but it was also the result of his work. So in writing to the Corinthians, Paul defends his apostleship by saying, look, God used me to start your church, so that shows you that I was an apostle sent to start churches, because you can see the results of the work. He says, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So it was the salvation of those who had not heard before and the starting of churches in these pioneering eras that showed that Paul had been set apart by Jesus Christ for this work. The signs and the wonders and the results both prove Paul's apostleship. Let's talk a little bit more about this boldness that we see in Paul and is a good example for us. Boldness is a key word throughout the book of Acts. We see Paul's boldness over and over again. Chapter 9, verse 27. Chapter 13, verse 46. 14, chapter 19. Chapter 26, chapter 28. Over and over again, we are reminded how bold the Apostle Paul is in the book of Acts. And it's always in a positive sense. You never have Luke saying, oh, Paul was a little too bold here. No, it's always, Paul was bold and that's good. And here we see even before Paul was saved, in the early church, that the prayer request of the church was for this boldness. Now, Lord, Acts 4.29, the prayer of the church facing persecution in its earliest state, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That there is a 
seriousness, there is an importance in the work of the church that calls for boldness. The work of Jesus Christ in the world today is carried out by us. Christ is in us, Christ is empowering us, and the work of God is the salvation of souls from sin and death unto everlasting life. There's no work that's more important than this, and so it's not a work that we should be ashamed of, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so the church should not be a place where we have a bunch of sheep who are sheepish. We don't need sheepish sheep, We need bold flock of God who recognizes the importance of the mission that we're on, the power of God that is at work in us. And so Paul wrote to Timothy and he told him, don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ or of my chains, but stir up that zeal within your heart. People are dying. People need the Lord. It's no time to be quiet and to keep to ourselves. It's the time to be bold and proclaim to the world the good news. We've got good news. We're not bringing to the world bad news. They might not like the good news, but that doesn't change the fact that it's good news. What are we offering? We're offering eternal life. We're offering forgiveness of sins. We're offering a relationship with God that is true and real and genuine. We're offering life, life indeed, to everyone, free of cost. God paid the cost. Don't be ashamed of the gospel and the good news and have a boldness and pray for boldness. Tonight at our Lord's night, when we have our prayer time, Acts 4.29 should be our prayer. Lord, grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness. All. Can we be too bold with the gospel? I don't know if you could find a verse that would support that idea. I don't know if it's possible to be too bold with the gospel. Just a couple verses later, same prayer, or right after they'd prayed, the answer to their prayer, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I like what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. He said, since we have such a hope, think about the hope that God has borne in your heart. A hope like that calls forth boldness. And that's what Paul says. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are forward. We are audacious. There was a film put out by Living Waters on the homosexual issue in our culture and how to share the good news of Jesus Christ in in a world that is promoting the LGBTQ agenda. And the film was called Audacity. You have to have a certain audacity to speak the word of God with boldness in a culture, in a society that loves the darkness and is running away from God. It's an audacity that isn't born from pride. It's not born from self-seeking. It's an audacity that is born out of concern and love for the well-being of your neighbor. You want them to have hope. We have such a hope. Therefore, we are very bold. We are audacious. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, another prayer for this boldness. As bold as Paul was, he still felt the need to ask for boldness. You know, sometimes you think, well, there's just some people who are bold. And that's not me. I'm, I'm more the quiet person. You know, and let the bold people go out there and be bold. That's not the right way to think of it. 
It's not about your personality or their personality. What it's about is the importance of the message. That's what it's about. It doesn't matter your personality. And that's why even Paul, who was probably one of the boldest people I could think of, he asked for boldness. He said, pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We have an ought. We have an obligation. We have a duty. But we've been given this word. We've been given this hope. We've been given this truth. And as you have received freely, freely and boldly give. All right, so... Paul is confident in the local church. You are able to instruct one another. So do it. Also, boldness. The word of God, the health of the church, the salvation of the lost, it's important. Don't be sheepish about these things. That brings us to the third point in our outline in verses 15 and 16. Paul's priestly service is presented to us in verses 15 and 16. Notice where it says, the second half of the verse, Because of the grace given me by God, and into verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. In a number of places in the New Testament, we are told specifically that Paul was sent to the Gentiles. That doesn't mean he never shared the gospel with Jews. We see him doing that quite a lot. But the bulk of his ministry, the focus of his ministry, was on reaching Gentiles with the gospel of Christ. And there, where he talks about being a minister... That's a word that could be used of a religious priestly type service, or it was also used in secular, if you want to use that word, atmosphere for a minister of the government, just like we have ministers of different things, the minister of finance in our political culture. So back then, politicians were also called ministers. But here, you see, he's not thinking of the political context because he talks about the priestly service of the gospel of God immediately afterwards. And he talks about the offering of the Gentiles sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he's thinking very priestly, very Levitical, very Old Testament in his service to the church. That when Paul thinks about his ministry, he thinks of it as a priest. Now, this is an example for us. Now, we're not an apostle like Paul, but we are priests. And so sometimes people think, well, you know, priests, those are the people in the church who are ordained. And the non-ordained people, they're just the lay people, the congregation. And the Bible knows nothing about that idea. Yes, you do have certain positions of authority in the church of elders and deacons, but when it comes to the work of the ministry, this is not something that is done by a priestly class, but it is something that is done by the whole church. And so Paul here puts his ministry on the level of a priest because this is something that we should all be able to relate to. That you also have a part in bringing the offering of the Gentiles to be acceptable and pleasing in God's sight. God has gifted you with a spiritual gift, as Paul mentioned in Romans chapter 12. Everyone has the Holy Spirit. Everyone has a ministry to perform. And that just as Paul was zealous to perform his ministry so that he could bring the church to maturity, a holy church, a sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God, so you must ask yourself right now, how am I doing in fulfilling my ministry? Am I doing what God has called me to do in order that the church of Jesus Christ might be holy and acceptable as a sacrifice and an offering to God? That's purpose. 
That's meaningful. There's a lot of things that we do in this world that it's hard to see exactly how it's meaningful. It all is. But when you're talking about creating a group of people who are the temple of the living God, who are a sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God, out of all the peoples of the earth that are unholy, you've got one group of people called the holiness, and that you've got a part in making that everything that God has designed it to be so that all of the glory of Jesus Christ can dwell in this temple, that's a work that gets me excited. I'm glad to do my part. And I'm glad to equip you to do your part. The pastors and the teachers are given to the saints to equip them for the work of ministry so that you can minister as a priest and you can be a part of making the church sanctified and acceptable by God. You've got the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit has working, is working in your life to make the church more holy. Holiness in the church is of utmost importance. What are we doing here? We're not gathering together a group of people. We're gathering together holy people. People who can offer up sacrifices and worship that are acceptable to God. Come back with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These verses should be memorized. These verses should be on your mind often. Paul writes, in light of all the doctrinal truth that has been entrusted to the church concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, concerning the work of the Holy Spirit and the plan of God the Father, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's that Levitical terminology he's coming back to in Romans 15. This living sacrifice is holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so that's what Paul gave everything he had for. That's what Paul was passionate about. That was his ambition. That's what he was going to boast about in Christ Jesus, that he was accomplishing the work that God had given him to do so that the church of God among the Gentiles would be acceptable and holy and offering to God. That's Paul's priestly service. And then we've got Paul's boast in the Lord. Now I told you I was going to come back to Colossians 1, 28 and 29 and I put this slide in here to make sure that I did. Because we talked before about how we're warning everyone and teaching everyone. And that's what a church is supposed to be. But so many churches aren't that. They're just a worship center where people come with their own ideas, their own lifestyle. It doesn't matter if you're living according to the Word of God. As long as you proclaim the name of Jesus and sing happy songs, you're welcome here. That's not a church. That's a worship center. But what we are part of is a church where we are warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom and that you're doing that and the elders are doing that and you're expecting that and you're inviting that because our goal is not to have a big worship center to have a big tent where we bring in as many people as possible so we feel like we're successful in creating religious entertainment. Who cares about all that? God says, shut the doors. I don't want it. I hate your worship. I want holiness. I want obedience. I want genuine love for God and genuine love for one another. I want a family. A holy family. And so, 
Paul was willing to work for it. And he was willing to step on toes. And he was willing to admonish and instruct and to be beaten and to be rejected and to be slandered and to be opposed because he had a passion, he had a goal to present everyone mature in Christ. Look around. I want everyone, every one of you, to be complete, mature in Christ. To be all that God wants you to be. To have nothing in your life that is not according to God's will. To be strong, to be wise, to be capable. To be a light that is shining in a dark world and you bring us all together and you've got a people of virtue, a people of love, a people that God looks at and says, yes, this is why I sent Jesus Christ to die. This is what I wanted to create. That's a church. For this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see, when it comes to the ministry of Paul, the priestly ministry of Paul, it's, it's not the ministry of Paul. It's the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not our work. It's his work. We're doing things that are impossible for people to do, that only God can do. And he's doing it through us. He's doing it in us. We are the instruments of his purpose. That's amazing. The boasting of Paul. Paul says, I have found reason to be proud of my work for God. And what is that work that Paul did? He accomplished the preaching of the gospel. He accomplished the goal of that, bringing the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That doesn't mean all the churches were perfect. It didn't mean that everybody had heard the gospel. What it means is, is that Paul had done what God told him to do in that region. And Paul wasn't done. There were regions that he still had to go to. But when you start with Jerusalem, where the gospel began, you go all the way to Illyricum, which is north of Greece. And Paul says, all this area, from Asia Minor through Greece, Ephesus, Corinth, all the churches of Galatia, I planted churches, I proclaimed the gospel, just as God told me to. And now other people are building on that foundation. Those churches have a hope, they have a future, because I did what God told me to do. And that's the boast that I want us to have. I want us to be able to stand before God and say, God, we did what you told us to do. Fellow elders, we sit around the table each month, we pray, we talk, we read scriptures, we plan. When we stand before Jesus Christ, and we will, I want to be able to stand there and say, we did what Christ wanted us to do. We accomplished his work. And then the whole church. It's that the elders are leading but it's not a work of the elders. It's a work of the whole church. Well, will there be a day in glory where the whole church is gathered before Jesus Christ and he's able to say to one and all, good job. You did it. You did what I told you to do. And so we're going to be praying for that. We're going to be working for that. That's going to be our continued passion in this congregation. And I'm glad that you have joined to be a part of that. As I said before, this is not a human work. This is the work of God that is within us. And Paul states that so powerfully there in his letter to the Philippians when he said, you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
This is a divine work. God is doing God things in our congregation. It's all from him. And so our boast is not in ourselves, not in our wisdom, not in our accomplishments. Our boast is in his wisdom, in his power, in his plan, in his person. That he's present here. The Holy Spirit is doing this. Nothing would happen if God wasn't doing it through us. And so our boast in our ministry isn't really a boast in our ministry. It's really a boast in his ministry.